Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I see some familiar faces here uh, today. Um, <clears throat> uh, before I introduce our team uh, this afternoon, a special welcome to you all to this uh, uh, presentation. Uh, my name is David Higgins, and uh, I've been uh, 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 coerced into uh, coming all the way from Moiraki to uh, support our, our <laughs> whānau, our kaimahi, and it's a real pleasure to be able to do so. The far end uh, is uh, Robin Walsh. Robin works for our archive team, and she spends an awful lot of time trying to figure out who is who in a photograph, or many photographs, actually. So um, uh, a lot of the credit for this particular uh, publication must go to Robin because she did spend an awful lot of time identifying individuals and groups. Uh, beside Robin is uh, uh, Dr. Stephen, uh, and uh, Michael is uh, um, a, uh, uh, a young man that we're very proud of. His uh, family reside in Awaru or Bluff, um, but his whakapapa is back at Moiraki. So, um, it's a privilege to have Michael here with us uh, this afternoon. Uh, beside the empty chair is uh, the interesting figure of one Takare Norton. Uh, Takare is a uh, is a Christchurch boy, um, and uh, he uh, is the manager of the archive team at Tiruranga Oanaitahi. So he has a very important role to play um, in uh, managing all of us. Uh, and he's going to talk about that history very shortly. Beside us, between us, is uh, the redoubtable uh, Helen Brown. Now, I've just said that Takare is the manager of the archive team. The actual boss of the archive team <laughs> is Helen. Um, and we, uh, we work really hard to ensure that we don't get on the wrong side of Helen, um, because it's uh, an interesting side to be on, I can assure you. But without further ado, again, welcome to you all. And uh, I'd like to uh, introduce whoever's first up. That's me. That's me, the boss. <laughs> Kia ora, everybody. So last year, uh, our team embarked on a new project to explore our tribal history through the lens of biography and through the collaborative efforts of many, um, a number of whom are in this room with us today, we produced what we are proud to say is a truly beautiful book. Um, and it's the first in an anticipated series of volumes of Ngaitahu biography. So I had the privilege of leading the project and um, co-editing the ensuing volume with Takare, um, but Tangata Ngaitahu is the work of many hands. So the front cover, which is here, was designed by our own Neil Paddington, and um, it mirrors the walls of many of our family homes, Runanga Halls and Farinui, where photographs of our tipuna watch over the activities of their descendants. So these sorts of um, 
assemblages of images will be familiar to many. I mean, and not just to Māori families, of course, as well. I know my Pākehā grandmother um, had what she called a rogues gallery. So such family galleries, they illustrate whakapapa, they connect the living with those who have passed away, and they are a focal point for conversation, memories, and storytelling. They are also treasured taonga. So when whānau started literally taking down um, precious framed portraits from their lounge walls for us to reproduce in this book, we knew that Tangata Ngaitahu was destined to succeed. So in early 2017, we agreed to work with Bridget Williams Books to jointly publish um, this book of biographies to coincide with uh, the 20th anniversary of the Ngaitahu deed of settlement. And then we embarked on the difficult task of um, selecting 50 people whose biographies would feature in this first volume. And alongside some well-known tribal figures, we agreed that it was important to include those who were actively involved at a hapu or whānau level, so their contributions would not fade from tribal memory. And many of those who made our final list were tipuna who'd come to our attention through um, our work on Kahurumanu, which is the Ngaitahu Digital Atlas that we talked about yesterday. Um, there's bookmarks on the seats, and that's got the link to that atlas if you'd, if you'd like to check it out, um, or other research projects. Um, others came to us by serendipity, discovered or remembered through conversations with colleagues, friends, and whananga across our team and their wider whānau and hapu networks. So in the book, you'll find tohunga, such as um, Hone Tari Tikau here, who is one of our most significant sources of traditional history and nature law. Um, rangatira, including Tuhawaiki, who signed the treaty at Rōpoki. Uh, Wahine Toa, such as Amiria Puhiriri Hukianga from Onuku, whose story um, I'll share with you in more detail soon. Um, indomitable aunties of the claim era, such as Marama Higgins, this is David's mum, um, who, in addition to being a fashion icon, was um, a dependable presence at uh, tribunal hearings and key tribal mm. hui associated with the claim process. Um, she also liked to drive fast cars. Uh, politicians, including Hori Kere Tairoa, whose name will be well known to many of you, I'm sure. He was MP for Southern Māori from 1871, and he played a vital role in advocacy for the Ngaitau claim. Uh, activists, such as Eri Hapiti Rehu Murchi, um, she was a researcher, a feminist, um, a Māori Women's Welfare League uh, advocate. Community leaders, um, like John Puao Rakiraki, um, he's seated here in the middle, first on the left. Um, he was a leader and advocate for the people of Maranuku from the 1890s into the early 20th century. Tribal historians, such as uh, Hariata Pitani Morera from Kaikoura. Um, sports people, such as Tom Robinson, um, who played uh, rugby for New Zealand Māori, and he was also a um, community leader at Wairiwa, Little River. Um, weavers, including Maifanaunga, Kath Brown from Taumotu, Mahinga Kai experts like William Taparo Spencer, who uh, was a murihiku kaumatua, a seafarer and a mutton birder, and um, fellow mutton birder down there, Mike, will elaborate on his story later in this session. Um, musicians such as Eva Skerritt from Bluff, who performed on the London stage as Princess Iwa. And this photograph here is, um, it was taken by the Lumiere brothers, who were French brothers who, um, did the first colour photography, and uh, she happened to be in London at the same time 
uh, as the Amen was photographed by them. And I love this image because it's, so it's 1911, but just because of the coloration, it looks so contemporary and she's so relatable. Um, the formidable Maria Tini, um, marae builder from Awarua, and um, champions of the Ngaitu claims, such as our late friend and mentor, Trevor House, whose story Takarei will um, share with you in more detail later in this session. I'm aware this keeps clicking, I think. I get it, better get it out of my pocket. Um, and many more. So together, these tūpuna trace a diverse trajectory through time, kaupapa, geography, and whakapapa. Among them are the ordinary yet extraordinary, who kind of are my favourites, and those who for Ngaitahu at least are household names. Um, collectively, the biographies span 200 years of tribal history, shedding new light on some old faces and bringing others into the light for the first time. Many of these people lived their lives altruistically, giving time, resources and support to their whānau, hapu, iwi and more broadly to national and international communities. And all are interconnected by whakapapa and the depth of that connectivity became more and more evident um, for me personally, but I think for all of us as the project developed. So names, places, occasions, events, myths and memories coincided and occasionally clashed, but ultimately repeated like a rhythm that runs through and across the stories. And the overarching history that unfolds in the book is, um, I would suggest, more nuanced, intimate, and insightful, perhaps, than a history, be it thematic or linear, that privileges, you know, tales of conquest, events, and hard facts. Um, the descendants, whanaunga, and friends of these tipuna were central to the creation of the book, and interviews and conversations took place at kitchen tables from Rotorua to Bluff over numerous cups of tea. And working so closely with Fano was, and continues to be, because the project is ongoing, we're working on a second volume, um, one of the most rewarding aspects of the work. Um, from the outset, our intention was to create a richly visual publication, and the result, um, we think, um, is, could be described as a tribal family album, and many families contributed photographs such as this one, from their, literally from their family albums. This is um, Ricky Ellison from Taumutu with two of his cousins. So we as the authors were privileged to hear anecdotes and stories that were too numerous to squeeze into the constraints of a thousand words. That's the length of each biography. Um, because many of the tipuni here deserve an entire volume dedicated to their lives and achievements. Uh, whānau permission was sought for the inclusion of every biography and where possible and appropriate yeah, the memories and perspectives of Fano members were woven into the essays. So Tangata Ngaito is essentially a work of authorised biography, though all involved would admit that an unauthorised version containing the many side stories we encountered would make for a real page turner. <laughs> but probably not publishable. Um, so many new stories and perspectives were also brought forth from the archive, including some photographs uh, really seen before, including this image of um, Tawa at Pukitaraki, including Miri Harper, who's the woman at the centre of the shot, who's um, the subject of one of the biographies. We also took the opportunity to reproduce a number of documents in the book, including maps and extracts from letters and notebooks. Um, just an example here on the right is a kari, that's a short haka that was written by this man on the left, Hoani Machu. 
um, and this map, which was drawn, drawn by uh, Honetari Tikau. Um, a number of taonga were also photographed for the book, such as this Meri Paunamu Kahutai, which originally um, was owned by Karatai, the rangatira from Otako, who was uh, one of our treaty signatories. So the biographical subjects are eclectic, so too are the authors and their writing styles, which range from the academic to the anecdotal. And among the contributing authors are esteemed tribal historians, um, archive team staff, history students, and several whānau members, some writing for publication here for the first time. Um, among our whānau authors is our colleague, um, Robin, who wrote the biography of her mother, uh, Mahana, whose story she'll share with us soon. So this approach of writing about your, your own is a central tenet of our team's practice, and um, it's a means by which we are continuing to progress the aspirations articulated by our kaumatua during the years of the Ngaito claim to promote Ngaito perspectives on our own history rather than the perspectives brought to bear by others. So all of our um, projects are undertaken by Ngaito, for Ngaito, and with Ngaito people. So Fano are at the heart of everything we do. And since the publication um, of this um, book, um, it's been received enthusiastically um, by our by our own, but also by the wider world. Um, we were very excited when within days of publication, um, we learned it had made the long list <coughs> for the um, Ockham New Zealand Book Awards, which was um, an unexpected, um, but you know, welcomed accolade. The forward by uh, Tatipini O'Regan provides a personal perspective um, and also articulates the aspirations of Te Pai Kōrako, that's our um, archives advisory group, and our team in preparing the book. Um, and the short contextual history of Ngaitahu, written by um, Mike, appropriately sets the stage for the biographies that follow. Um, so that's just a brief overview of the project, but now we'd like to share with you um, in a little more de detail some of the biographies in the book. Um, starting with um, this uh, wahine toa here, Ameria Puhiriri Hokianga. So Ameria, um, is not my tipuna, um, but I've had the privilege of working with her descendants on numerous projects over the past um, two decades, actually. Um, and her presence, her stories, and her mana are integrally tied to this place where she's from, uh, Onuku in Akaroa Harbour, where she was born in 1855. So our media was an influential leader, a renowned weaver and matriarch um, of her people, the Ngaitarua and Nati Irekehu Hapu of Ngaitahu uh, at Onuku in the first half of the 20th century. And today, she's affectionately remembered by Onuku Fano simply as Granny. Uh, this is a photograph of her, I don't know if I've got a pointer here, but she's, she's in the centre. Her parents are sitting on the up, uh, upturned hull of a waka. Her father, the old man there, is Karaweko. So the Farinui at um, Onuku is named for Karaweko. He was um, uh, a well-known builder of waka, and um, she is standing uh, media with her hand on her father's shoulder. And two karawekos left is Meri Fariu, um, his wife. Um, so Amedia's infancy coincided with the purchase of um, Akaroa lands by the British Crown in 1856, which was, of course, a pivotal event in the Ngaitahu history of Banks Peninsula. Um, and Karaweko was one of the signatories to that purchase, which ultimately had devastating consequences. Um, 
for Ngātahu, depriving them of the ability to cultivate food and thus to trade. So whilst three small reserves were set aside, most families had no option but to take jobs working for European settlers establishing farms on what had been Māori land. But our media continued to live on um, the ancestral land at Ōnuku, which was subsequently redefined as um, Native Reserve 886. Um, here she is pictured with some of her mokopuna. So our media um, married uh, Penny Hokianga um, from Ngāti Pahauera, a hapu of Ngāti Kahungunu. Um, they had nine children, um, but tragically six of them died in infancy or youth, but three of their daughters lived to adulthood. And Amelia and um, her husband also adopted and raised numerous other children. Um, as I said before, she was a highly proficient weaver and she made um, traditional ceremonial garments, such as this kākahu, which is in the Akaroa Museum. She also made practical um, items like kete and kono, food baskets. Um, but her mokopona, um, several of whom I've interviewed over the years, recall um, being called upon to chase geese to pull out their tail feathers for their grannies weaving. And Amelia traded the kiti that she made with Pākehā women in Akaroa in exchange for clothing for her family. And several examples of her work were collected by um, Louis Vangioni, you may have heard of, who was a collector based at Akaroa in the early years of the 20th century. And some of these items, such as these kawe, which are straps for carrying loads, um, are held at the Canterbury Museum and were made by Armedia for Louis Vangioni. Uh, and this is a picture of Armedia, obviously, on the, on the right, um, and uh, Louis there on the left. So Armedia was also one of um, Vangioni's key, uh, key informants regarding um, Ngātahu language, customs, history, and the place names of Banks Peninsula. At Ōnuku, where she spent most of her life, Amelia fulfilled the role of community midwife. She was legendary for swimming the three kilometres across Akaroa Harbour to attend meetings or tangi, and to assist with births at the kāinga of Ōpukutahi, that's near Wainui. And following the deaths of her parents, she inherited the mantle of leadership at Ōnuku, taking responsibility for the running of hui, tangi and other events. She also ensured that all of her children and grandchildren were well versed in the history of the area, the Ngaitau history of the area, and could turn their hand to weaving. Um, in a lot of images of her, you see her holding um, this family taonga, this taiaha, and um, I've been told that she wasn't afraid to wield it, and she knew how to wield it. Um, so, Amelia was baptised in the Wesleyan Anglican Presbyterian and Catholic churches, a common practice among um, Ōnuku whānau, given um, the eagerness of all denominations uh, to bolster um, their congregations with um, Ngaitahu worshippers. But she later became a follower of Ratana and was um, made regular um, annual pil pilgrimages to Ratanapā with her mokopuna. And she had a standing um, arrangement with the train driver that he would stop just north of Kaikoura for the whānau to gather bags of watercress to take um, onto the pa as a koha. So in her um, uh, later life, she lived um, at Rapaki for a period um, with her granddaughter, where she was a familiar figure sitting on the lawn, weaving and singing. Uh, in 1940, which is when this photograph was taken, she participated in um, the centennial celebrations, um, uh, which were held at Akaroa. She died in 1944 at the reported age of 101 and her burial service was attended by hundreds of mourners, both Māori and Pākehā. 
2016, um, a new Farikai with expansive windows overlooking Akaroa Harbour was opened at Wanuku. Um, it replaced an earlier building um, that had um, been constructed during the 150th anniversary of the signing of the treaty in 1990. Like its predecessor, the new Farikai was named Amiria Puhiriri in honour of the Onuku matriarch who left a legacy of efficient leadership and whose commitment to her culture and her people continues to inspire her many descendants. And um, her portrait is hanging up in the Farikai if you have the good fortune to go there and eat their incredible food. Um, so another inspirational wahine, Ngaitahu, who embodies this concept of mana wahine, that is the mana specific to women, uh, is Mahana Walsh, um, whose story Robbie will share with you now. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Uh, greetings to you all. My name is Robin Walsh. I joined the Naitahu Archives team in June 2013. I had a preconceived idea of what archives meant. Think Indiana Jones. <laughs> Dusty old books, rows and rows of high cabinets with secret treasures inside and sepia photographs of people and places from long ago, plus lots and lots of paper. Well, that wasn't too far off, but in reality, I soon learned it was so much more. In August of 2015, after a training session in oral history at Mahi, I decided it was well past time that I did an oral history interview of my mother, Dorothy Timahana Walsh, or Mana, as she was more commonly known. She was 92 years old. It overwhelms me when I think that six short months later, she was gone. I am so incredibly grateful that I was able to capture some of her earliest memories as she shared snapshots of her life with me from when she was a baby of 18 months of age, right up until near the end of her life. It gives my whanau and I great pleasure to still be able to listen to her voice as she and I reminisced and talked about her life achievements together, or to still hear her laughter as we stopped the recording for a visitor knocking on her door, or a break for a cup of tea and a wee gossip. Her voice is there for posterity, for all her mukapuna and the generations ahead. At the end of the day, as I was packing up my gear and thanking her for being willing to do this history with me, I still recall her saying, I'm glad it was you, Robin, and not someone who didn't know me. Last year, I was lucky enough to be asked to contribute a short biography about Mum for the Tangata Naitahu publication that our fabulous team were putting together. Mum was an amazing woman who lived a long and full life. It was a privilege to be in the position, not only as an archives team member, but as her daughter, to be able to share memories of her life in this book. Dorothy Temahana Tato was born in her grandparents' house on Hopkinson Road at Arafenua in August 1923. She was the second eldest of six siblings, three brothers and two sisters. The family was brought up in a strong Māori community at Pukataraki and lived right on the beach in a little house called Whareto. She attended K 
Katatani School and achieved excellent academic scores. At the age of 12, she was awarded Ducks of the School. She recalled a very happy childhood despite the poverty of the depression years and never felt she went without. There was always the beach and the bush to play in and plenty of kaimoana to eat. Mum attended Otago Girls High School in Dunedin, travelling there and back every day by train, leaving at 6.30am and not returning home until 6pm. She also worked as a housemaid during the school holidays. After two years, she told her parents she had had enough and wasn't returning to school. Instead, she went waitressing at the Savoy Hotel in Dunedin, training in food services and the hospitality industry. Her first wage was around 15 shillings per week. Mum met her first husband, Percy Smith, when he was driving the bus she caught to work. They married in 1944 and lived in Waikwaiti. Their four children, Tamahuia, Aroha and Nairi, were born in Palmerston Maternity Home. In 1955, they moved to Campbell Park Special School for Boys at Otakaiki in the Waitaki Valley, where Percy had secured a position. Mum also found work there, running the dining room and managing the sewing and laundry rooms. They decided to buy a house in nearby Duntroon. Tama went to Waitaki Boys while the three girls attended boarding school at Te Waipaunamu Māori Girls College here in Christchurch. In March 1970, Percy passed away. Later that year, she attended the tangi of a Naitahu woman, Rima Walsh, who had died, leaving seven young children, including two sets of twins, all under the age of 11. Fearing that the family would be split up, she offered to foster them. Subsequently, she gave up her job to stay at home and care for us, whilst our father, Bernie, worked away truck driving. Eventually, they were married. They had a lot in common. Dad took a keen interest in Naitahu culture and became involved in many of mum's activities, including hui hopping all around the South Island, supporting the fight for Te Kiremi, the Naitahu claim. Mum said, our strongest bonds were formed during the Waitangi Tribunal hearings. Mum became revitalised in Te Reo Māori after attending the first six-week Kuritini course in Wellington. She learned ancient waiata and karanga, taught weaving, and became closely involved in the revival of the language and the arts at Bukitaraki. She was also heavily involved in the establishment of Te Whare Kōa Community Centre and the Māori Women's Welfare League in Omaru. She remained a proud member of the League throughout her life and also became a Justice of the Peace. She travelled to San Francisco in 1984 as a supporter of the Naitahu contingent at the Te Māori exhibition. It was the experience of a lifetime for her. She learned a great deal about herself and her tipuna and gained an international perspective of her culture. Age never slowed her down and in 1988, in her late 70s, she joined her son Tama and four of her grandsons, as well as other members of Katihui Raparunaka Kipukataraki on the Greenstone Trail the Rupu retraced the footsteps of the Naitahu Tipuna who had travelled into the Whakatipu 
wide Māori area to mine the famed Ponamu source to Koraka. Mum was also integrally involved in the redevelopment of Pukataraki Marae, which culminated in the eventual replacement of the Huirapa Hall with a new whare nui in 2001. This was the fulfilment of a lifelong dream for Mum, who had witnessed the poverty of Māori communities during her childhood and the struggle to maintain and renew community facilities such as Marae. In March 2010, Mum received the Te Pā Whakawairua Award, Kaitahu Papatipu Marae Reo Champions Award. She was nominated by Kati Huirapa Pukataraki in recognition of her commitment to championing, championing Te Reo. She celebrated her 80th, 85th and 90th birthdays, surrounded by her large whānau at Pukataraki. <coughs> She died in Dunedin on the 15th of February, 2015, aged 92. Her last outing, the day before she passed, was to visit the Hākui Woman of Maitahu exhibition at the Otago Museum with her whānau, where her own story was shared. It was a happy day for her. In an interview in 1998 with Rob Tepper for Takaraka magazine, Mum said, and I quote, I'm now comfortable with my world, and I'm comfortable that my family can go out into the world, earn their living, stand on their own two feet, enjoy what the world has, and still value the things that I have given them. I feel my life has been greatly enriched by these challenges and my experiences. This world has much to offer, and I am truly blessed. I'm deeply grateful to all those who have helped to shape my way through this life, to my many treasured friends from all walks of life, and most of all, to my wonderful family." End quote. So, as you can see, these biographies shared here in Tangata Naitahu are timeless, written down for all to see and remember the people who shaped our iwi and who brought us to the place we are now, simply priceless. We need and must remember these stories of our people who they were and what they did, whether they were statesmen or builders, teachers or students, or fathers and mothers. It's like Papa, knowledge about ourselves, memories of the past that link us all together, and memories for the future generations. As long as their names are spoken, they will never be forgotten. If I can give you any advice as a whānau contributor, it would be to sit down with your whānau, your parents, your Torah and power, listen to their stories, take pictures, record or write down. These tanga are too precious to lose. This is what Tangata Naitahu is about. It has been an honour to now have my second piece of writing published and watch out for the next edition of Tangata Naitahu, <laughs> where I will be writing a biography of my twin sister, Nicola Walsh. Happy reading. Nga mihi nui, kia koutou. Uh, kia ora tato everyone, my name's uh, Takere Norton. Um, David wasn't quite right, I don't only get bossed around by Helen, but Robin as well. Oh. And we even also Jen in the background in that, so um, yeah. 
anyway, uh, so I'm here to talk about Trevor House's biography in, in our book. Uh, Trevor was born in 1931, and as a young child grew up in the South Bay Public Works Camp in Kaikoura. Several members of his family had got tuberculosis, and as a young child, Trevor moved with his family to the Naitahu Kainga of Tuahiwi, just north of Christchurch, where his family could get better access to hospital treatment. Uh, he's the little kid just up here. There he is. <laughs> Trevor was brought up by his mother, who was often bedridden with tuberculosis, leaving Trevor to do the cooking and housework for his mother and four other siblings. From a young age, Trevor learned how to gather kai to put food on the table for his family. He also learned how to steal food from local Pakeha farmers. After leaving school, Trevor spent a short time in the North Island before returning home. He married Jean in 1963, and he wouldn't admit it, but we all knew that Jean was the boss. For quite a long time, he worked as a foreman for a local writing company, and then as the manager of a local distribution warehouse. Trevor also started to spend a large amount of time in the Māori Land Corp, researching records for his own family land interests, and started to build up a good knowledge of the administration of South Island Māori land. This growing reputation as a researcher led to Trevor being approached by the Ngātahu Māori Trust Board to assist in prosecuting the Ngātahu claim before the Waitangi Tribunal. So against the wishes of his wife, Jean, Trevor decided to leave a job that provided him and his family with long-term security to work as a researcher, which he had no formal qualifications or training in. Trevor became one of the first employees of the Ngātahu Māori Trust Board, and as David said yesterday, the old office was just across the road. Uh, and soon became the lead researcher for Naitahu during the Waitangi Tribunal hearings. He became the researcher, records officer, archivist, Naitahu Property Company, and Naitahu Environment Team all rolled into one. The vast quantity of material uncovered by Trevor became the cornerstone of the Naitahu archive, reflecting his assertion that Naitahu people should be able to access their own knowledge. The stories of Trevor and his team staying up all night and burning up photocopiers have become legendary. What has also become legendary is when one photocopier would break down, a brand new one would magically appear the next day uh, out of thin air. As Trevor would say, beg, borrow, or steal some. <laughs> Trevor was particularly proud that unlike the Crown, with all of their resources, Naitahu always submitted the evidence to the Waitangi Tribunal on time. In Trevor's words, it just had to be done. And it was done by guys who really had no experience in that sort of thing. Trevor was particularly proud of his ragged ass 15, as he would often call them. Trevor was also a member of the Naitahu Negotiation 18 that negotiated the Naitahu settlement. And after the claim was settled in 1998, Trevor moved into retirement, albeit just for a short time. I first met Trevor in about 2004 when I approached him to assist me in protecting an old Naitahu pass site located on one of the high country past releases as part of tenure review. I vividly recall my first meeting with Trevor for all the wrong reasons. When I first met him, I couldn't believe how big he was. So not only did he have mana and presence, he was absolutely ginormous as well, which made him quite uh, intimidating. Anyway, um, I, explained, I explained to him that I needed more information. And in typical Trevor fashion, he said, son, stop. Tell me the process. What is the process? And so I said, look, to be honest, this is my first job at a university. I don't really know what I'm doing. I've got much support. The government doesn't listen to us. I've got no funding, and the farmers hate us. Well, as you could imagine, that doesn't go down too well. And then he completely loses at me. You're a tail gunner. There's no matter in the process. You're just a kid. 
you're standing on the side of the road and I remember his massive hands smashing the coffee table in front of me and I'm sitting there going, holy shit, this is, this is not good at all. And then he walks out, jumps in a taxi and goes home. So uh, he can imagine as a 22-year-old, that's, uh, I'm not looking too good at that stage. Anyway, a few weeks go by, uh, and I feel pretty bad about this. Uh, deep down, I know this isn't really my fault, as I've just in inherited a shambles of a process. Well, that's what I was telling myself anyway. So I give him a call and pop out to see him. And on the way to his house, I gather the best biscuits and cakes I can find. I'm not sure of the exact words that I use, but I basically say, look, this whole thing's a bit of a mess. I'm happy to fix it up, but I need your help because you're the man. So we have a, quite a few of these meetings over the next couple of months. And uh, this has cost me a fortune because I'm continually buying these amazing biscuits and cakes to <laughs> keep them on the good side. Then eventually at one of these meetings, he goes up to his room and he pulls out all these amazing papers regarding his past site. And along with that information and people like David and others, we managed to protect this uh, past line credit conservation area. But at this stage, we've established a small Kromatua Paipai. Trevor's on it, David's on it, and a few others. We then decide to map all of our sites in the high country to identify and protect our most iconic sites. This is the beginning of Kahuta Manu, a Naito Cox mapping project that we presented yesterday. Here we are. So we start having these mapping hui where Trevor, David, Jimmy, Makapura would come in and bring their own personal papers so we can map all of this amazing information on our GIS system. We also started the tradition of making sure we had trifles for lunch every day, a proud tradition that we continue uh, despite our new office policy. For the following 10 years, we all worked closely together, traveling around to Waipanamu, working with all of our marae and tribal communities to record and map thousands of place names. For years, people have been trying to interview Trevor, but he would always refuse, never trusted any of them. So when I said to him that he should be interviewed, he turned around and said to me, that's fine. You do it. So I got myself trained up, attended an oral history training course that Helen had organized. Over four days in 2012, I interviewed Trevor about his life and involvement in the Naitohu clan. At his request, we did the interview at South Bay Kaikoura, where he, where he was brought up. After the interview, there was a real sense of relief knowing that his story had been recorded down and it's now safely secure in the Naitohu archive for future generations. Over the last three or four years, Trevor's health really started to go downhill. It wasn't too long before he moved onto a rest home. He didn't mind it in there too much, but he absolutely hated it when he became too ill to travel with her around the island. When he would get bored in there, he'd ring me up and say, get me out. So I'd go, pick him up, bring him into the office, and he'd sit at our desk with staff running around after him, making him cups of tea and overloading him with chocolate biscuits. When Trevor passed away in May last year, we decided at the last minute to include his biography in Tangaranae Tahu. The interviews that I did with him back in 2012 became the backbone of his biography. And one of the things I think is great about his biography is that you can really hear his voice. Uh, because we knew him so well, it meant that we were able to include all the things that mattered most to him, including his favorite photographs. Uh, this is one he was especially proud of when he got his QSM uh, in 2012. There are many things I love about our book, but what stands out for me the most is that we've inspired Naito people to research and write biographies of their own family members for the next editions. Trevor would often say that the claim was successful because it was done by the ordinary person. And I think that this very notion is the exact reason why our people have absolutely enjoyed our book so much. Kia ora. Thanks again.
Kia ora te whare. Um, I, ha- I had this p- perfect length. And, um, and then I saw Helen go over hers. And so I've, I've just written in back in some of the stuff I'd cut out. So by way of introduction, I should say a little bit about William Spencer. Um, he has a lot of descendants. And we'll get to who and why and how in a moment. Um, I'm not one of them. But there is a familial connection. And I'll explain that. So one of William's uh, sons uh, was uh, married to a Pākehā woman from Bluff. Uh, he died in the early 20s. And when this, this man died, his wife, his parking wife, had one little baby and she was happy with the other. Right? So died again tuberculosis. And then when she, she remarried, uh, another nice happy thing, she said, you know, once, once you go black, you never go back, right? So she remarried another Ngaitahu uh, man and they had three kids and the eldest, two girls and a boy. And now the, the eldest girl is my great grandmother, uh, Modu. And so she, her nickname was always Bubba because these two Spencer brothers of hers, that was dear Bubba. Um, so I always, you know, we knew her as, as Bubba. Um, and so there's some things that uh, this Pākehā great-great-grandmother of mine uh, that she sort of impressed upon us, certain values, certain little ditties and sayings and, uh, that come down through our line, through our, our Haberfield line, but they really come from that Spencer family. So I have, this, I have an affinity with them, uh, even though I'm not a direct descendant. So one of these little things, when my grandfather, who actually is still alive, he turned 86 today, um, so he's about the, the age that William Spencer was when my grandfather was born. Um, he, uh, my grandfather was six foot in standard six. And uh, anyway, he was sort of getting a bit on the TDI and you'd try and bath yourself in a tin, little tin bath, you know, someone would hold a curtain up and it was all a bit, you know. And um, he said to Nana, because he'd grown to this big man, he said, Bryce, how do you do this when you're an adult? Easy when you're a kid, you sit down in a tin bath and stuff. And she said, well, son, uh, you know, grandson, but she sort of went up. She said, you start at the top and you wash down as far as possible. And then you start at the bottom and you wash up as far as possible. And whatever you do, don't forget to wash possible. <laughs> so they, you know, they, they are very sort of Spencerism sayings, right? So that, anyway. Um, and just thinking about your, your comment about our you communal nature of, of Ngaitahu life and religion. Um, my grandfather was, uh, his father was a Catholic. He was baptized an Anglican. He went to a Methodist Sunday school. He was married in a Presbyterian church. And we said, what happened when you died? He said, who cares? I'm going to Māori heaven. Okay, William Spencer. So Wiramu Te Paro Spencer was the youngest of two sons born to Ngaitahu woman Merita Kauri, who's also known as Tene Rauwaho, uh, and her husband, Irish-born sealer and whaler turned settler, James Spencer. Now popular history refers to James as, as Bluff's you know, founding father, um, and this was uh, indeed where William was born in 1844. And he subsequently lived most of his 93 years in the port town before his death there in early 1938. As such, it's possible to frame William's life, uh, his life course, in narrow terms, right? He was a sailor, a whaler, an oysterman, and a mutton birder, the very stuff of Fobo Strait. And he worked, he died, and he was buried under the lee of the hill where he was born, right? So he's a, he's a local identity. Now, this is how New Zealand's bureaucratic state and this nation's wider power culture remember William Spencer to the extent they remember him at all. However, William Spencer lived a highly mobile and trans-regional life. Now this mobility, like many of the people in the book, was born out of the demands of colonial capitalism, as well as long-standing patterns of circulation, connection and exchange that are at the very heart of Ngaitahu culture. Simply put, he was a global citizen, a self-consciously modern individual, but proudly and actively Ngaitahu. 
Now, for all of these reasons, William Spencer is a key figure in a book that I'm currently writing on Bluff, um, which is also my hometown. Uh, and this is also why he's an important ancestor to have included in Tangatangaitahu. Now, my, my book on Bluff is just a shameless plug, but seamless, so you don't actually know what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> I said that out loud. Uh, my book on Bluff uh, takes a, a world history approach to studying the past, and I think this really shows through in my bi biography of William. Here he is in his Bluff Naval's uniform, ready to defend the realm. Interestingly, uh, established in Bluff in the wake of um, Parihaka invasion, but it's a whole other, anyway. So... This approach means that I recognise the, the existence and the importance of nation states, but I don't see them as natural, as natural or as clearly bounded entities. I don't think they're necessary to order the past. Instead, I think what world history does, or my reading of it, is to simply extend the whakapapa-framed historical consciousness that underlies tangata ngaitahu, uh, and instead focus on encounters, exchanges and entanglements that link human communities, and explore shifting patterns of connections and interdependence. Now, what does all this mean? Well, I think we can see these thing, um, things in William's uh, life, which we'll turn to now. So William's mother, Mary Takaudi, uh, really hailed from Otago, Otago Peninsula, but she shifted, shifted south to the rural Pukki Island in Fovo Strait, possibly in response to deadly musket raids into Ngaitahi territory, led by Ngāti Tuarangatira in the 1830s, which, of course, this is a whole subset of uh, death, destruction, disruption, and, and movement in Māori history that emanated out of the Bay of Islands, but which touched every single part of the New Zealand archipelago. Now, William's father, James, was a Napoleonic Wars veteran, you know, fought in the Peninsula War, um, he was at the Battle of Karuna, uh, who arrived in southern New Zealand as a sailor in the uh, early to mid-1820s via New South Wales. Of course, New South Wales only exists because Britain needed a penal colony after it lost the 13 colonies uh, in the 1770s, right? So these big world historical things bring people to bluff and shape life there. Right, and so James, uh, William's father, was established as a trader in the port of bluff by the mid-1830s. In 1841, uh, James and Mere were married at Waikwaiti, by which I mean present-day Karitane, by the Wesleyan missionary Reverend James Watkin. And this was one of the earliest, if possibly the first, but one of the earliest Christian marriages conducted in Te Waiponamu. Now, all of this, uh, you know, being at Waikwaiti and having these things, uh, were due to the global whaling trade, British imperial expansion, and Protestant evangelism. Right? Again, these big things that play out for native communities on the ground in specific places. Now, Bluff itself was increasingly pulled into the expanding New South Wales frontier from about the year 1810, uh, and James's commercial operations in the port reflected this connection with Port Jackson, with, with Sydney. And in the course of this trans-Tasman existence, James, William's father, died on a return voyage to Bluff from Sydney when William was only two years old. Notwithstanding, William's life and that of his elder brother, James, James Jr., I've got a couple of Jameses here, keep up with me, um, uh, was still shaped by a confluence of southern Ngaitahu lifeways and European maritime traditions. Now, this was really assured by their mother's second marriage at Royal Pukki Island to Captain William Shepherd, uh, who was a local whaler. So William and his brother James both married women like themselves, birds of a feather, right? So, um, by which I mean people from Favo Strait with Ngaitahu mothers and Pākehā sailor fathers. James married Kari Whenua uh, Anne Edwards, who was born on Whenua Ho, um, you know, the important island west of Rakiuta. 
We're trying to keep this bloody parrots alive. Um, while William married Louisa Temimeke Cooper, but it's actually pronounced Kalpa, um, who was born at the neck on the Rakuta. Now, Louisa's mother was uh, Naitahi woman Te Mahana, and her father was Stuart Kalpa from Dundee in Scotland. Now, by the by, both Meritakaudi, William's mother, and Te Mahana, his mother-in-law, are represented, uh, two of the large po wahine inside the Whareinui uh, Tahipotiki on Bluffs Te Rawaroha Marae. Now, William and Louisa were married in 1866 by Fovo Strait's first foreign resident missionary, um, the Dua German, uh, is there any other kind, uh, Reverend J.F.H. Bowlers, and they had 12 children. We have an image here of, of three of their children. Now, many of these children uh, married into other Ngaitahu families, you know, not just within Bluff, we, we, we took this stuff out, um, thereby strengthening connections within and across the iwi. For instance, William and Louisa's eldest child, also Louisa, but known uh, as Ginny, mar married Philip Panapana Ryan um, from Porumaka, from here, from Banks Peninsula. Now, this couple's eight surviving children are the basis of Bluff's well-known Ryan family, which is easily the largest branch of the Spencer family. And for those of you who don't know, never said, so I learned the alphabet from the Bluff phone book, so that meant that I thought the alphabet went Q, R, Ryan, S. <laughs> <coughs> Significantly, another of William's daughters, Phyllis, married her father's half-brother, Thomas Shepard, right? So remember, the mother remarries, and there's a son, so there's half-brother. One of his daughters, so it's a niece-uncle marriage. Um, but the family supported this union that, quote, mirrored the unions of chiefly families many decades previously within their own whakapapa to retain the lines of power and lineage. In 1861, so we think here William's about 17 or so, he joined the crew of a trading ship, a local trading ship, the Post Boy, and he helped transport the first cargo from the Invercargill Wharf to Australia, which was mainly wool um, from some of Southland's earliest farms. Now, he jumped ship in Port Phillip, Melbourne, and he worked in shearing sheds across rural Victoria and later spent two seasons shore whaling in Twofold Bay in southern New South Wales. Now, the thing about Twofold Bay and that whaling station, it's, it's a place in Australia that gets as close as kind of early race relations in New Zealand where you have actually a lot of you know, Aboriginal whalers working on this whaling station. It's, a, it's nationally significant in Australia, and here we've got this Māori boy from Bluff um, in the mix. Now, William returned to the Dowdy Charms of Bluff in mid-1864, and his arrival coincided with the signing of the Rakiura deed, which was, of course, the final of 10 large transactions by which the Crown acquired Ngaitahi lands in the 19th century. Soon after this, because this is what, right, so the British world is a maritime world, so it's all about connecting, you know, um, rail, with rail with sails. William and his brother James helped construct the, the railway that connected Bluff, you know, ran from Bluff to Invercargill and into Southland's hinterland. After he was married, William spent two years in Arofenua and Tamuka, a place we've heard a little bit about today already, um, where his wife had strong whakapapa connections. And when they were there, William visited the village at Wamarama, established by Te Maiharoa before its residents, in William's own words, were, quote, ejected by armed force. However, William and Louisa made their home base at Bluff. And it was from here that he worked at a number of occupations throughout the Lower South Island. These included shipwright, Drover, shearer, sealer, sawmiller, stevedore, gold prospector, fisherman, and oysterman. William and Louisa were also active participants in the annual titi harvest, mutton birding, and local parlance. A large number of William and Louisa's descendants continued to main houses 
in harvest tihi on the Whānau Island on the east side of Rakaura. William was a founding member of the Bluff Naval Volunteers in 1883, as we saw in the last photo, and he represented Awarua on the Aroteuru Māori Council in the early 1900s. This was something of a forerunner for the Ngaitahu Māori Trust Board, um, which incidentally one of his sons, Tom, later chaired, and which was itself, right, the Trust Board, of course, a forerunner to uh, Te Runanga o Ngaitahu, uh, which funded the very book we're discussing here today. William also played a central role in sending Poha Titi, right, large kelp bags of preserved mutton birds to Māori soldiers uh, fighting on the front lines in the First World War. Now, William outlived his brother, James Jr., by more than three decades and became a, an important kaumātua in southern Murihiku, eventually being described as, quote, Upokorunanga, head of the Bluff Māoris. That's how they would have said it. We have an image of him from about this time. Here he is here on the far right. We've got his brother-in-law, his wife's brother here on the left. Described in his obituary as having helped to, quote, prosecute the claim of the Ngaitahu Māoris, and playing a leading part in all Māori affairs in the South Island, we do well to remember the name and life of William Spencer. Globalized. Oh, sorry, thank you. It's interesting, you know, this globalisation that we had back mm. those times ago where people just moved about the world and changed occupation and reinventing mm. themselves oh, so much. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, you know, I'm, I'm deeply sceptical of the idea that globalisation is a new thing, right, that it came with the internet or some other magical point in the 20th century. And I'm, and I'm equally dismissive of the idea that you can't be a global citizen and a tribal citizen. And when you look at someone like William Spencer, you can see that what appears to be new is actually very old and that those things aren't mutually exclusive. And I think when you when you think about the work that Tūrunanga was charged with, protecting our heritage, building new futures, I think it pays to look back at those things and um, ha have a proper understanding of where we've come from and as we shape ideas about where we might want to go. That, who is your audience mainly? Is it a local kind of audience? Is it national? Or does it become international as well? Um, all of those. But, but, you know, honestly, our first audience is our, our own. But um, interestingly, a few weeks ago, um, uh, we published one of the biographies about Mary Harper from um, Kalitani on the spin-off, and it just had such enormous interest. It was like, um, I think it was, it was over a thousand um, interactions, whoever that works, and so many comments and such enthusiasm for it that um, it kind of surprised me, to be fair, and it, it surprised um, Leonie Hayden at, at the spin-off. Um, but I think that people, people just really connect with human stories. And um, it's the kind of history that appeals to people, you know, across the board. So, um, and I think it's a really good way for us in terms of telling um, our tribal history to see it through the, through the lens of these very human relatable stories. 
so I, I do think it's got quite widespread interest. But yeah, first, first it's um, our own, and then further, um, yeah. were restricted to a thousand words each for the publication, but do you have longer biographies of these people that will eventually be available by some means? Potentially. I mean, we've got, we've got quite extensive files and um, it's excruciating making, cutting them down. Um, we have considered potentially, um, you know, in the next volume, making them longer, but re really we just want this to be, this is, just providing a glimpse of these people. Because like I said, you know, so many of them could have entire books. And, and perhaps it will inspire that, um, you know, further work to be done on these people. But yeah, our aim is really to bring them into the light first. I think one little comment I'd add to that is, a lot of these people, their memory is kept alive within their families or within their communities. But there's a lot of these people who were, you know, they were big men and women of their day, but they either didn't have kids or, the kids didn't have kids, or what, their lines have died out. And uh, if we weren't telling them, so some of the biographies I wrote, I had two of them I wrote were like that. You know, if, if, if we weren't writing them, no one else would be, because they considered marginal in the national story. So there's a wider tribal duty to, to those ones that haven't got, you know, don't have, don't have descendants. One a good example of what Michael's just said is uh, Tira Marehu himself, senior mm -hmm. Kaitahi chief. Uh, who lived back in the 1800s and died in the 1800s. Um, uh, he had no offspring that lived, outlived him. Uh, but we have to carry uh, his story for future generations. No one else can. Um, I'm interested to mention Kaku. And when I went to that exhibition, I was astounded at the whakakapa of the women and naming um, Ngāti Māmoe and Waitaha that you don't often hear about. So how does this book interweave all those whakakapa and make those visible? Um, part of a couple of biographies that I worked on uh, were people that only identified themselves as Waitaha Kati Māmoe. And working with their descendants, uh, they loved the fact that we were going to them and sitting down with them and telling their story in that, and, um, and they had seen other stuff and written about them, but they never wrote them themselves. And, uh, you know, although they define themselves here, not over here, um, they loved the fact that they got to tell their story. And when the book came out, we handed it to them, they loved it. And they were asking for more copies, we handed them out. So, um, but the opportunity for them to tell their story is what they really enjoyed the most. So we are as inclusive uh, as possible. Possible. It's not an exclusive book, and um, we try to tell people's stories, no matter uh, how big or small or well-known they are, that, um, that we're back and included. So really inclusive where we can be. I'm getting the one finger. I'm not quite sure what that means. <laughs> 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 okay. Uh, kia ora whanau. Uh, thank you for your attending this afternoon. Uh, we will be ar around here for some time, so don't be afraid to ask these four questions. <laughs> <laughs>